For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating this afternoon? A lot's going on here in New York City. Perhaps some of you around the country have heard about it. Uh, but here we are celebrating one of my 
favorite people. This man uh, is many people. Uh, he is a playwright. He is an actor. Uh, he is a drag performer. He is he has done so many. He's a Tony nominated writer. He has done so many. Everybody, lo- I have never heard one person in this business say a negative thing about this man. I love, love, love him. I'm not the only one, and I'm here to prove it. Uh, Someone has a very special message for him, and then you'll see him on the other side. It's Charles Bush. Hey, darling, it's Julie. I'm popping in to say hello. And first of all, a hello to Richard. How are you, sweetheart? I loved doing Richard's show. He has the best guests, and he asks very good questions. And uh, so I'm sure you're going to be talking about your show coming up in April at 54 Below. And um, yeah, and I'm just popping in to say hello. I'm going to the opening of Shut tonight, so I I, I have to, you know, get hair and makeup. You know how this goes. Um, Anyway... We, I love you, we love you, and um, yeah, all excited about your, your new show. Take care, and thank you, Richard. Shocked she oh. couldn't be here. <laughs> Hello, Charles. Welcome to the show. Hello. Oh, what a lovely surprise. I haven't seen Julie in a while. We talk on the phone, but I haven't actually seen her face in a while. No, I saw her just a few weeks ago at the uh, pulmonary uh, fibrosis evening. I mean, what uh, you know, what an amazing job she does, and oh she's God. a Tony Award winner. I mean, uh, well deserved. Uh, but we're here to talk about you today and all that you've done. This is your year, is it? Oh, I hope so. I really Do you have to feel like it? Yeah. Well, I got a bunch of things happening. I guess the, the, the big thing is that, that this book that I've been working on for about a decade finally is going to be um, published, will be out on September 12th. Yeah. So I'm so excited because yeah, it's a memoir. And um, about half the book is about Julie Halston. <laughs> a big part of my life. Oh, my gosh. But it's about a lot of people. I, I mean, so I, among the names dropped <laughs> Julie Halston, Greta Garbo, Claudia Colbert. I uh, got a whole list of people that I've somehow... And not necessarily in that order. <laughs> uh, no, not exactly. Yeah, but it's all exciting. I, I There's so many times that I didn't think um, the book was really going to happen and or be finished or or be published or any, any of that. So I'm so excited. And then I, I've got... Um, my return to the, the cabaret stage in, in about two weeks. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, well, I have to ask, uh, will Miriam Passman be making an appearance there, or is it just simply Charles Bush? Yeah, it's just me. That Miriam Passman, she can take over. <laughs> I think she's content to be playing the duplex uh, Mondays at, at 4.30. Oh, uh, for those of you who do not know Miriam Passman, she is on YouTube. She lives in the world of YouTube, so she's there, and she's so much fun. I was watching a clip today, and I, I have to tell you, I was on the floor. I was laughing hysterically. That's right. Um, you know when you were interviewing Rita. 
Oh. And everyone, everyone <laughs> That's the way did. That was, I, we should probably fill in. Not you know, everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, I have this character, Miriam Passman, who's a, a very agitated um, doyen of cabaret. And, but unfortunately, she's relegated to always playing the, the spots that nobody else wants to fill. But she's got uh, great delusions of, of grandeur uh, and has never won any awards or anything that she's uh, uh, doesn't stop her. She's indefatigable. And, and it was actually a character that eventually uh, was the basis of my play, The Tale of the Alger's Wife. And uh, uh, under a different name, in, in that play, she evolved into Miriam uh, into Marjorie Taub, but she, Miriam Passman is an uh, important character for, for for me. And yeah, and for a while there, um, uh, my friend Kathy and I were were making these rather elaborate uh, videos of Miriam's uh, talk show that was set set in her apartment. We should do another one. I, I oh, so I think we should do a whole series. They're they're just so much fun. I'm going to ask you a question, and it may seem, sound like a woo-woo type of a question of being way out there. Okay. Uh, but uh, I happen to believe in it. But do you believe in manifestation? Do you believe that you have manifested this incredible life that you have? Uh, what does that really mean? What does that way you explain it a bit more? Well, I mean, you have created this you've created a life for yourself mm -hmm. based on, I would believe obstacles that were placed in your way growing up. So rather than having those obstacles placed in your way, this is the way that I see you, Charles, other people may not see it that way, but these obstacles were placed in your way. And rather than you hearing no, you said, well, that may be a no for you, but it's going to be a yes for me. And you went around those no's and you created your own opportunities. Yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Um, I think that, yeah, I think inside, since I was very little, I, I think I, I, I thought I was kind of wonderful. And all of the outside world, school, and other people may not have thought I was that special because, you know, I barely got through school. I mean, I just was so unscholastic and. Um, even with this book, I mean, I, I, I can't proofread. I can, I, the other day, we, uh, I had to go over the um, just the copy for the back of the, the book jacket. You know, and I looked at it. I must have looked at it 50 times. And I, I emailed back, looks great. And then my, my agent, who fortunately you know, has an eye, wrote back, well, uh, they spelled your name wrong. Uh, the play is... It was called Tales of the Allergist Wife, not the Tale of the Allergist Wife. <laughs> right over my head. Oh, it looks great to me. You know, I, I just, um, I don't know. I'm just not good at focusing on on details like that. Or, uh, and I was very bad in school and just somehow got through. But inside, I did think that I was sort of uh, fantastic. And, and I think when I was a kid, I believed that that was my secret. That I held that, and I, and, and I was choosing <laughs> not to reveal it to the outside world until I was good and ready. And when I did, then everybody else would realize that I was this wonderful person. Well, have you done a lot of introspection throughout your life? Or you said it's taken you a long time to write this book. Uh, so over the years, uh, were life circumstances getting in the way obviously you've continued to perform you've continued to write you've continued to do all these things 
why did it take so long to write this book? Well, I didn't really know what the, um, when I started, what the concept of it was or the structure. I just started, you know, blah, 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 writing it down. And in fact, one of the first things I did was I thought, well, how do I do this? I thought, I'll, um, I bought one of these little tape recorders that uh, you sp speak into and then you plug it into your um, computer and it transcribes everything you say perfectly. So the first thing I thought, I'll get Julie over here and we'll uh, I'll interview her and that's how I'll start. So we start, we talked for a long time and then when I plugged it in, it all came out gibberish because between her Comac Long Island accent, Charles <laughs> talking like this and me being rather grand and you know, sort of great lady, it was incomprehensible. The computer wouldn't pick it up. So then I had to try a different way. And I just finally sat down and I, I just started from the beginning and start, started writing it. Then at one point, you know, I would go into a bookstore and I'd be looking through the different celebrity memoirs. And I thought, oh, gee, a lot of these people are just kind of writing kind of essays about different periods of their life and not, chrono not going at it chronologically. I'll try that. And then I worked on that for a couple of years. And I then I'd give it to a friend who would say, uh, I think it needs to be a linear book, just like a real. And then, so then I'd work for another year that way. And I'd show it to somebody else who'd say, oh, that's so hokey and old fashioned. And I, I believed everybody who I spoke to. And that's not a good way to, to work. And I, I don't do that with plays. You know, I, with a, a play, when I write it, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I, listen, I, I work often with my director, particularly now with Carl Andrews for the past 20 years, you know, and he's giving me many ideas and qu asking questions. But for the most part, I have the confidence of, of just writing it. And, but with the book, I was insecure. And so I began, to, I would listen to the last person who, who read it. And I don't think that's a good idea. But eventually, in a way, it all worked out. It, it took a long time, but I kind of ended up taking the best of of all the different versions. That, so is it a memoir or is it an autobiography? Um, I didn't know there really was a difference. Well, a memoir pretty much are memories as they occur to you as you're writing them. An autobiography pretty much is a linear mm -hmm. account oh. of your life. Uh, I guess it's in between. What, what I, the way it's worked out, and I, I'm very proud of it, is um, it's, a sen it's essentially linear, but... I go off in different tangents. Like for instance, well, this should interest you of all people. The, I, I'll, when I talked about it as a child that my aunt, because I, I was raised by my aunt Lillian in mm -hmm. New York City, and that she would take me to Broadway shows starting when I was eight years old. And I'll say, and then we, we saw uh, Carol Channing and Hello Dolly. And that will uh, then I'll flash forward to a, a kind of interesting moment I had with her when I was an adult, then I'll go back to to the linear story again. So I, I kind of weave it in and out. Um, but uh, I, I mainly it's I, I focus on the moments, of my key moments of my life and things that stories that are they're, they're funny and hopefully touching. Yeah. Well, let's so talk about some of the, let's talk about some of the key moments that did shape your life. Um, your mother passed away when you were very young Damn and nice. you went to live with your aunt Lillian mm -hmm. and based on interviews that I've seen, and there's a great documentary about your life as well. Your aunt Lillian was very much like an anti-mame, mm -hmm. but she 
I love the fact that she kept uh, one foot basically in this fantasy world of theater and frivolity, but she also kept the other foot on the ground. I love the fact that she would get the New York Times and you would read headlines and you would know what was going on in the real, real world as well, in yeah. addition to the fantasy world that she created yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, so she really, truly shaped your life for you. Oh, absolutely. And um, even though she's been gone for uh, 23 years, uh, the day doesn't go by that I'm not um, oh, somehow a lesson she taught me or, or words she said that re reverberate constantly. I can kind of call her forth instantly. Just Sometimes it's even thinking about what what she uh, what her opinion would be of something today or or someone that I know now that she you know only after her her death and and if I think oh what would she think of Tom Judson and I can almost sort of call her forth by imagining how much she would like him and my musical director of my cabaret yes, so yeah um, no she was a remarkable person she was uh, I always think you know she was a bit of all the famous ants in literature. She she was anti Mame in some ways, but she was also um, uh, Tom Sawyer's uh, persnickety Aunt Polly, and she was very much um, David Copperfield's uh, uh, Aunt Betsy Trotwood, who uh, was so protective and and would face anyone down who um, to to save uh, save uh, David Copperfield and save me. You know, I, I've been kind of lucky. I, my life, although I, I, you know, I played a very active role in my in the narrative of, of my life, uh, I've also uh, been saved many times by people. You know, I've been that's been a, a, a great thing that at each step of the of the road, when I might have, you know, uh, fallen into the abyss, there's somebody who comes in and 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 saves me. So I, I can't really always say that, you know, I am the um, complete uh, hero of my life. Uh, when you when you first found the world of theater and, you know, for most kids, myself included, uh, the theater for me was my first safe haven. Was mm -hmm. that also this, the case for you? Well, um, in some ways, the, the acting classes that I went to. See, I, I just didn't. Uh, I said it before, but I. School, I've never really done well in a classroom ever at, at any age. And um, I don't know. I, 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 there was some, first of all, there were so many deaths in my family early on between uh, eight, starting when I was seven, between seven and 10, we had some people were dying right and left in my family. And that, you know, affects you, particularly when you're a little, little child. And, I mean, well, may I ask Charles, excuse me for interrupting, what did, what was that doing for your psyche as a young boy? Yeah. And and how was, I mean, were there thoughts of your own demise happening at that well, time? Yeah, I began to feel, well, you know, will I be the next to vanish? Because people suddenly would just go away. Also, the, in the, the manner of the way people died in my family, with my, well, my mother... Um, ha, you know, she had a damaged heart from, uh, I think, I guess, rheumatic fever as a child, but she was not a sickly person or anything. And, and she just uh, one afternoon 
went uh, down the street to um, uh, see an, to complain to a neighbor that their dog was was loose and, and taking a big dump on our lawn. And she went across the street, down the street, and never came back. She had, uh, I, guess, I think, I think it might have been an aortic aneurysm because later, mm-hmm. you know, when I was um, in my late forties, I, I nearly died from from that. Yeah. So it's possible that's what happened to her. Um, but anyway, so she just kind of left and never came back. And then, you know, my uh, aunts, uh, my two aunts, her older sisters, their husbands died uh, shortly afterwards. And, you know, they were, I don't, it was sudden that they weren't in the hospital. Uh, you know, just people just kept disappearing. Yeah. So, so that I became very neurotic kid and I, I never, you know, I, I was a sort of sickly sort of fragile waif, but although there was never anything really wrong with me, I never went to a doctor, but I was so addicted to, uh, I was always kind of nauseated. So I was always popping Tums or, or, or I couldn't, my nose was stuffed up and I, I was always having a Vic inhaler and, and then Vicks inhaler. And then, um, I, that's when I started my chapstick addiction and I, I really haven't licked my lips since, you know, one, that 64 years. So, yeah, I mean, I got over the, the, um, the inhaler and the, um, uh, Tums, but but I still got the chapstick thing going. Yeah, so I just, just I was, uh, you know, I'm also I'm one of the world's great self amusers. I, I really can be by myself a lot and and have an awfully good good time. So 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 that that was helpful. But it, on the on the dark side, it did allow me to drift into just a, a world of my own um, fantasies and, and and dreams, and I lost contact with with the real world in a certain sense till I, I was going to flunk out of school, but uh, time I was, um, when, when I was in uh, junior high about to go into high school, that was when I really was at my worst. And that's when um, my aunt stepped in and, and, and uh, had me live with her in New York city. Cause I'd been in Westchester up, up till then. And, and she really did this reclamation job on me. And I think her, her goal, immediate goal was that, by the end of four years that I would get into college because it certainly didn't look like that was going to happen at the rate I was going. And she, um, yeah. And, and a big part of it was her trying to uh, get me to see that I was part of a, a wider world that there was. And, and, and part of that was that we would read the um, front page of the New York times every day and uh, just, or she would, she was, um, she loved uh, African violet plants and she had a whole big table full of these plants and she made me water them just to, to even the fact of nurturing something else, something just get outside of, uh, of the terrible self-absorption that unhappiness brings. That, that's the thing, you know, when, when you're so, when you're so miserable or, or afraid, you know, you, sh- you sh- start closing different doors and and uh those have to be opened you have to be if you're you know going to survive you have to be part of of the world absolutely but she succeeded she got you into one of the top colleges yeah but when you said that you retreated into that world did you start to create characters in that world at that time when did the writing start for you 
Well, I was always writing. I, I, it's funny when you look back from a distance and you think, well, well hey, you know, why didn't I think of that or, 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 or whatever? Because I was, I was writing full-length plays at the age of 11. And, and she would send me to, um, uh, you know, I would, I would get a respite from, from the dreary world of suburban high schools, whatever, junior high. Um, and she sent me to a series of rather exotic um, summer theater camps and which were uh, very much catered to the, the young boy with uh, recherche taste. And so there were, and they were rather artificial societies where toxic masculinity wasn't encouraged and, and there were no athletics and all of that. And, and it was, and you were really with all kids of your own kind of uh, world. Mm -hmm. so that, that was good. And at one of those camps, I, you know, I went, I wrote a full length play and, and they really did think I was rather special and it seems odd looking back that, that my, why didn't my teachers in school, why did they feel I was so insignificant? So I, I don't really quite know, but uh, I, I was always writing, but, but I didn't uh, really, it didn't occur to me that, that I would be a writer. I just wanted to be on stage and I wasn't very good. Frankly, I, I, I think I liked it. I uh, loved it too much. I think to be on stage just seemed so, uh, uh, so magical that I rarely could remember the lyrics. You know, I wasn't, I was rather self-conscious. You know, I was one of those kids who just was a star. You know, it, it, it took me a while to, to figure it out. And, and, and then to figure out that um, it, it really wasn't until I was in college that I, I thought, oh, well, I could write roles for myself because I knew uh, even in, at Northwestern mm -hmm. where I was a theater major, I, I knew that I wasn't um, going to have a career as a commercial actor that I, I you know, um, I was too androgynous and eccentric. Uh, there were no, in, 19, in the mid seventies, you know, that this was before there was a Torch Song trilogy or, or, uh, you know, La Caja Fuller, you know, or anything that, um, I think that the only gay play was the boys, of the band, you know, and I certainly, and I, uh, there was nothing for me there. So, I knew that was, I have a pragmatic name, despite times when I was burrowed into my own dreams, I, I also had a very pragmatic nature at the same time. It seems like it's the opposite, but, but I did. And, um, and so I knew that if I was going to have any kind of career, it would have to be something that I would devise on my own and, and that's and, and that's what I, I wanted. I, I started at, in college. I thought, there, well, there are no roles that I want to play. And, and if you're going to do something as insane as be an actor, I think you should have a whole list of, of great roles. I want to play Hamlet. I want to play. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and I had none of those. So I thought I'd just have to write them myself. So what did you consider yourself uh, when you started writing these roles for yourself? Did you consider yourself very ambitious or did you, uh, I mean, were you, when I say that, some people say, I'm going to go and I'm going to make it no matter what. Or did you give yourself a timeline or did you even think in those terms? Well, you're good. You ask good questions. Uh, I was ambitious in the sense that 
I was just so, so focused and nothing would get in my way. However, I did not have, um, maybe because of the world, the reality of the world I was in in the 70s, uh, I did not have the big dream. I didn't think, oh, my goal is I'm going to have a sitcom. I'm going to have my own sitcom someday. I, I didn't think that way because it seemed almost unreal, unrealistic that it would happen. Or it just didn't occur to me. I don't think that way. I didn't think about, um, oh, someday I'm going to be on Broadway. I went from mini goal to mini goal. I became a solo performer uh, right out of college because... You know, I didn't know anybody to put a, get a play on. seemed very complicated, um, but I could just write solo pieces. And I started performing them at the duplex. Um, uh, the old duplex. The old duplex. Irv Rabel was, was um, just really wonderful with me, even though the pieces I did weren't really cabaret and didn't really suit a cabaret. But, you know, Irv had longings for the theater. And uh, so I think- well, was, Let's talk about that time frame. I mean, we're, we're talking 1978, I think. Yeah, exactly. uh, and so I came to New York in 1979. It was a very different New York at that time than what it is now. Right. It seems to me as if, if, from my own recollection, there were more chances to, if you'll pardon the expression, to fail than there are now. Are there? I don't I don't know what the scene is like, but there aren't that many cabaret rooms around even for, well, yeah, because like, for, you're so right, because the first place I played, when I, because I, I went to Northwestern, then I stayed in Chicago two years, and I came, then I came back to New York in 78. And uh, one afternoon, I just wandered into this place called Scene One, which was a small, small cabaret room on Hudson Street, down here in the village. And this fellow, Bobby Neeland, was the um, uh, manager, I guess, and the uh, and ran the lights and the sound. And anybody could play scene one. I mean, really, I, I think you'd have to have a, a sign on your back saying, do not hire psychotic. <laughs> do not, I mean, anybody, I really think they'd take anyone. So, so yeah. So in a way, that's kind of what you're saying, that it's um, it, was, it was kind of easy. You could fail. You could be terrible. And so I played there. And then, then around that same time, um, I was wandering around the village and I saw that, that the duplex, which was on, um, was on the other side of 7th Avenue back then, which had been this legendary cabaret where Joan Rivers and uh, Stiller Amira and Woody Allen and all these people played there. And it had been dark for a long time. And I saw that the, uh, it was in the afternoon that the uh, door was open and I wandered in out of the sun and uh, and I see this kind of outrageous character, Irv Rabel, who was just a dynamo. He, he and his uh, husband, uh, Rob, had um, come, had been teachers at an arts high school in Cincinnati. And I guess they're to the amazement of, of all their colleagues, they just, you know, sold everything and, and came to New York and, and bought this long defunct club and just put everything into it and you know and he, he was such a character the way he would kind of kind of talk in this you know really really harsh you know, high you know, voice yeah, <laughs> the accent and, uh, 
And I just did, did my, I auditioned, I, I chatted with them. And I think I did about five minutes of my, of one of my solo monologues for him just there. And he just got into me and, and made me part of the stable of performers of very interesting people uh, at the duplex, uh, Julie Kernitz and, uh, was it Rob Hoskins and Ruby Rims and, oh and, and you're all people who are kind of taking cabaret into different directions as opposed to um, song stylists and, and mm -hmm. uh, comics. So, I, so that was a, a lovely thing that I happened to walk in, uh, you know, out of the sun that day and, and became part of his, his group. You know, but, I had Lena Katrakas on the show the other day and we were talking about that time. I don't know what time your shows were, but when I did my first cabaret show, at Don't Tell Mama, I was performing on Friday and Saturday nights at midnight oh, yeah. and getting an audience. And that was before social media when people actually got out of their homes. What time were you doing your shows and how were audiences starting to find you? They never did. They never <laughs> did. It was terrible. No, I mean, I think I did normal like eight o'clock shows. I, I don't recall it being anything uh, odd. It's just that I was unknown and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I would have six people every time I did a show there. That that was amazing that that um, Irv kept his faith in me because it wasn't like I was making any money. Uh, then I, I, you know, Charles Ludlam was my idol, and I'd met him briefly when he was on tour in Chicago, and he had his own theater at uh, One Sheridan Square, mm. and I connected again with him in New York, and and he was very generous and. Uh, let me do my solo show at his theater uh, like after his on friday and saturday nights after his performance so i would probably go on at about 11 o'clock or something like that and, and even there i mean nobody ever came. I, I didn't last too long there you know nobody heard of me and and uh, i just get a handful of people with for, for years nobody ever, <laughs> ever came i was, was not a success uh no, but I just kept at it. And then, then, and then at a certain point, I did think, well, this is kind of ridiculous that uh, to to be doing these shows in New York um, for six people a night. And I came up with this new idea that I would somehow try to get my act booked in other cities where, where I might fool them into thinking that I was more <laughs> successful at, at, at small nonprofit theaters and that they would actually produce the show and pay me. So and and I because I had a, a lucky break that I had actually uh, got one of those in, in the Source Theater Company in Washington D.C. and I played uh, did did my solo show there and got and for the first time actually got reviewed and just got these incredible rave reviews from every paper from the Washington Post down to the Supermarket Weeklies and that was an Is that incredible the first time that you got rave reviews. Well, I'd got I tried this racket you know, of non-profit non theater. I went back to Chicago. I got somehow booked at the very nice theater in Chicago, the Victory Gardens Theater, because um, the artistic director, Dennis Zaychek, was a Northwestern alumni, and I think he got a kick out of me. And I did a little bit of monologue, one of my pieces for him in his office. And, and he said, well, let's, you know, Let's do it at the theater. And would you like this to be equity or non-equity? And I said, oh, equity, you know, I'll get an equity card. So I, I did that. But, oh, I just got panned. And it, it, now that was across the board from the Chicago Tribune to the to the, the gay papers, the 
supermarket weeklies. It, it was devastating. And, and yet, in, in certain senses, since I'd never been reviewed ever, there, there is a kind of morbid fascination that that all these people think you're you're somehow important enough to destroy. And, mm. and I would, so these reviews were just Charles, and you know, and, and they'd be rather homophobic, of course, too. And it would be uh, Charles Bush's a uh, wispy, uh, swishy young man who uh, has clearly no talent as writer or, or actor. <laughs> and, and, and are, and, and, are those reviews written by other gay men or straight men? I have no idea. I've, I have no idea. Probably, well, probably both. No, but they, it just was, you know, they, it, it was uh, upsetting and yet not discouraging. I, I just kept, I, I felt that, that somehow if I just kept at it like a, a horse with blinders on, and if I kept getting better and, and, and improving, that it had to work out. And the goal, the goal was always just to earn a living in show business. It really wasn't to be a star, it's just to, to earn my living. And that was just so difficult for um, throughout my 30s. And I had every kind of crazy job, uh, but I never, I never did a, a, a full-time job it was always, it was always temp work because i was worried that um that that would kill my ambition if i had a full-time job did you i mean what was the craziest temp job that you ever did that was not i had, so many. I, I had so many uh to, to choose from well um i was a, a receptionist in a zipper factory <laughs> I hope there's a chapter on this in your book. <laughs> I don't really go into it. That that one, I have so many to choose from. But well, I was you know I was a perennial temp, and they sent this agency sent me to for a couple of days to this on the Lower East Side. It was like a sweatshop, and it was this big you know um, uh, you know loft type space, and and just line of a poor little little you know immigrant women you know, at sewing machines and the cacophony of them making these zippers. And I was in a cage, a cage in the middle of the room as kind of an anti-main like switchboard operator, like, you know, uh, in black, I, you know. And uh, and the, the the thing was that the, this couple, I forget what their names were, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, um, who owned the, the factory, they were going under. And so I... Every time I would answer the phone, hello, uh, you know, so-and-so zipper factory, uh, somebody would say, uh, give me, uh, you know, Reva, you know, uh, what's, her, what's her name, the owner? And I'd say, I'm, I'm sorry, um, she can't get to the phone now. It's like, well, you tell that whatever, you know, uh, to call me. And then the next one would call. And, the, and every, you know, they were off. The, the owners didn't want to speak to anybody because all their creditors. So that, that was kind of, kind of wild, you know, just hearing, Oh my God, you know? Uh, and then I was, um, Oh, I had a, I was seeing this man uh, who uh, had a sideline business of a sports phone where people would call in to get um, tips on what sporting events to, to bet on. And um, it'd be baseball, basketball, football and hockey. And I would just have to read, you know, I didn't know anything about it. So, I, you know, I would just read off what they told me to, to, to say, and uh, that, that was kind of wacky, but my, my big job for my source, main source of income for 10 years 
was um, as a quick sketch portrait artist because I, I draw well. And uh, I worked first at on the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey uh, as a portrait artist. And, and then um, oh, for a while I worked for an agency called Rent-A-Witch that booked tarot card readers and palmists. And yeah, you know, I, I figured, oh, you never know. Maybe they could use a portrait artist. And and this woman, uh, Barbara, who is the main witch, she she got a kick out of me and she said, well, maybe you could do psychic portraits. So she would send me to weddings and bar mitzvahs and anniversary parties. And I would draw people as they were in their previous life. Wow. So yeah, so I, you know, I so I would I would try not to burden them with you know saying oh you're Nefertiti or you're Henry VIII because that seemed unrealistic. So I would say oh you know you, to, to Uncle Sid, you know he'd sit down and I'd say oh, hmm, oh you you are Louis the Sixteenth <laughs> business manager, <laughs> and Steffi, you know oh. You, oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're Eleanor of Aquitaine's masseuse. <laughs> but I would do them in period costume. And, was and there was, a I, moment? I, I, pay, I pay my dues, baby. I've done it all. I've done it all. Was there a moment in your career when you finally felt that you had arrived? Or are you still waiting for that moment? I mean, yeah. I have interviewed, I mean, uh, Carol Channing said she was, you know, till the day that she passed on, she was still waiting for that moment. I just think, uh, not me. No, I think the, um, well, the, the whole thing was to earn a living. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't to be a superstar or something like that. Thank God, because, you know, I never became one. But uh, no, uh, the big, my big break was, was just um, in 1985. Uh, you know, I'd been the solo performer and, it, you know, I just kept at it, but I didn't, I, as I said, I didn't have a goal. Like I'm I got to get discovered and get on Saturday night live. That mm -hmm. didn't occur to me. No, I just, it was just the next thing I've got to do my act in San Francisco somehow. And then I'd work really hard and I'd do the act in San Francisco. So I just, I would just go from goal, obtainable goal to attainable goal. But, but then um, I somehow, a friend of mine from the Renaissance fair, because I, I worked for a couple summers to, as a portrait artist at the Renaissance Fair in Tuxedo, New York. And I met this very fascinating performance artist named Bina Sharif. And she um, invited me to see her do her act uh, at a club called the um, Limbo Lounge, way down on the Lower East Side in Alphabet City. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I went when I saw her there, I was so enraptured with, with her and with the whole, this wild, milieu that was at that that point this is around the same time that i guess madonna and keith herring kind of came out of that world and it was so exotic and the limbo lounge to me seemed like moulin rouge and the kit kat club and everything all wrapped into one and i started i didn't want to do my monologues i wanted to do something really outrageous and so i wrote the, i was uh, during the day i was um working as office in an office temp and i while i was there i wrote this um sketch uh which i called vampire lesbians of sodom and and we just put it on for you know two nights at this club and and i cast it with uh just people that i 
picked up throughout my whole life. Andy Halliday had gone to theater camp with me and Teresa Seves, I knew her from the Source Theater Company in Washington, D.C. and Arnie Claudner from the Renaissance Fair. And, you know, so it was that sort of thing. And and we just had a lot, a lot of fun. And then we uh, did another another couple weekends, another couple weekends. And uh, Michael Limbo, the uh, young man who owned the place, he he was really into us and said, oh, well, you should just be a regular like, th- theater company here. Mm-hmm. And Ken Elliott, who was my roommate and had been directing my my act, um, I got hit him really um, enthusiastic. And, and he made it all happen. He was... Um, uh, his energy and his determination to make it a real theater company. He, uh, again, sa- saved me in a certain sense. And, uh, and then we, we found Julie Halston and got, got, picked her up. She was working on wall street and, uh, got her to hook on and became the leading lady. So yeah. Oh, and, that, and that, and then, and, and really it all happened very quickly. I mean, I, I've dined and, wined and dined on this story for so many years, but frankly, it really was about six months. And we, uh, uh, Ken just thought that we needed to, uh, that maybe what we had was was something commercial and he didn't want to stay on Avenue C. So uh, so he figured out a way of producing the show off Broadway at, a, you know, at an equity production. And we uh, somehow got the money together with everybody's family pitched in and uh, everybody, Julie's boss on Wall Street, every, everyone. Um, Ken had been working as an assistant for Michael Stewart, the librettist of Hello, Dolly. And, and he and his sister, uh, Francine Pascal, they invested in the show. And it was, it was very touching to see who, who came through for us. And we opened at the, the Provincetown Playhouse on McDougal Street and got this extraordinary rave review in the New York Times and the show ran five years and amazing just and, an amazing and, and you know it's funny because sometimes you know uh, off broadway is is a not a surefire bet and you can have a hit show off broadway and and still not have it change your life but in this case literally the day after we opened uh i was wooed by icm and William Morris to be their clients when the day before I wouldn't have been able to get a, a job as a temp receptionist in that office. So, so yeah, so everything immediately changed for, for me over, overnight. You know, I, you know, when I see you and Julie together, I mean, I, it's almost, I, I believe in soul contracts and I believe that you two were fated to meet and to fated, work. oh, fated, uh, fated, <laughs> uh, and to, to work together. I mean, I just I love her so much. Oh, you know, she's, she's, she's a wonderful, incredible. wonderful person, and you know, and to see the where she. I mean, she's essentially still the same girl that I that I I met, you know, and uh, but now, she, of course, she is the confidence of a of a tr- true professional. Uh, and she's become so highly skilled and respected and loved. There's essential this this girl that uh, who I fell in love with. She, she's she's still there, and you know, we. Um, but you know when I when I first found her, <laughs> it just I I think that she had been given the wrong. Um, 
cues from people. She was this outrageous personality, you know, talking like to, like this and and, um, <laughs> and and sort of vague notions of being an actress or performance artist. But I think that in in, uh, in college or just in in life, I think that she had been sort of told to tone things down, you know, and not and and I actually where I'll take I will take some credit is I do believe that I gave her the confidence to, uh, you know, know that her 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 persona was the you know who she really was and just to to go for it and I started you know when. Um, when I started writing these plays for us in the East Village, you know, I, I saw that and getting to know her better, uh, and she would tell these outrageous stories about her, her mother and, you know, uh, just her, you know, she, she in, in life talks like a 1960s talk show hostess. And, and so I, I would um, sort of take phrases or, or rhythms of her speech and put it into these plays. So if we did Theodora, she bitch of Byzantium, and she played the Dowager Empress Aunt Vulva. I would ha have Aunt Vulva be talking like, you know, uh, you know Justinian. She's a tramp, <laughs> and I, I would put the stuff in, and and it, it developed into Julie. What we'd call her her trip. Yeah, and we I did that with everybody in our our company, and it was it was really kind of marvelous during those those years. Uh, we had that company for about seven years. I kept them all employed, and uh, with Ken and. And it was like having an old movie studio with contract players and writing. I love writing roles for specific people. I still do. That's really what, what I. It's great. Where, I want to ask you, um, and I want to talk about 54 Below in a few moments, but uh, before we run out of time, yeah, but, uh, I want to ask, because of where we are in the world right now, um, have you ever considered yourself to be an activist or do you feel that you are being forced to become an activist in terms of where we are in the world right now. Mm, gosh. Well, sometimes I feel a little guilty that I haven't been more of an activist. I, I, you know, I don't know. I like to think that just my presence on the scene is a bit of a political act yes. you know, performing in, in drag when I, when I do in, in my plays, but I, I certainly could, could do more. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your your question. Well, you know, I, you know, Charles, I feel the same way. I mean, when I was performing as Carol, um, I just went out and did the work. Um, I, you know, I was not really, you know, uh, out there, you know, fight. But it was a different world also at that time. It was different. So, and now, of course, with you know, with the the right wing somehow attacking. Uh, drag and and you know as a way of really trying to attack trans people which is also a way of just getting it to lgbt people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know um is is so terrifying and 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 dark you know that in a way we all really have to step it up i think yes absolutely well let's talk about uh april 20th uh god willing i'm going to be sitting there uh cheering both you and tom uh before we even get to 54 Below, the relationship that you and Tom have, because there is such a great connection. It's like Mickey and Judy on stage together. Uh, you have such a great chemistry together. Love you so much. Uh, 
Yes. How did it all come together for the two of you? And he said, he said he saw you last night. I had reached out to him too to surprise you today. He lives so far away. Well, of course, we're all talking about we're zooming. Um, Well, uh, I've known. I'm at this point in my life now, my age, where where they're like big time spans. I've known people. I've, you know, I. It's fifty years since I went to Northwestern, you know, the, the, it was a freshman. So I know I, it's like kind of crazy that, and, and Julie and I now are, I think that, I think this probably is our 40th year of our friendship. And Tom Judson and I, I met him just about the same time when we were at the Limbo Lounge. So I met him in, I believe in 84. So that's, was it 38 years? Wow. Yeah. And, and I, I met, I knew him in the East Village a bit. You know, and he, I knew him enough that actually that he composed the um, kind of theme song that we played at um, pre-show music for Vampire Lesbians of Sodom off Broadway. So I knew him enough to, to, you know, to ask him to do that. And then, but it was this sort of relationship that seven years could go by and uh, we wouldn't see each other. And then suddenly we'd run into each other at, at a coffee shop and, and just have marvelous time. But in, I, I don't know how maybe 13 years ago, something like that. I'm, I'm a little bit vague. Um, I was asked rather out of the blue to um, perfor- do a, perform on a, on a RSVP gay cruise. And I, and I hadn't performed in cabaret in many years, like 27 years. I used to work with Dick Gallagher, who I loved so much. And, oh my God, I loved him. Yes. and and But I it had been 27 years at least since I'd done any kind of cabaret work. And, Anyway, but it was it was kind of an interesting offer, and I thought, oh, I'd like to see what that's like. I'd never been on a, on a cruise before, and and I needed a musical director, and I was thinking, well, who'd be fun to hang out with for a week on a boat? I actually thought about that more than who's who's a good musician. I'll tell you, a skipper. What? A skipper. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. But he, um, so I asked Tom and he said, yeah. And then we had to throw together this act very quickly. And I don't think it was really the, the greatest act, but it, it, um, you know, got us on the boat and we, and we did it. And, and then, uh, I think we, uh, well, Mark Curtali, who I think was the one who, who booked us on that. And he, um, also he, he managed, uh, or still does Varla Jean Merman. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect that, a couple of times Varla Jean couldn't do a, a gig and he threw it to us. And, and so we did a couple more and, and we just you know, got along so well and had so much fun and, and began being more ambitious. And we started, um, I just started bo- booking the act and I really was Madam Rose and in, in Gypsy just, you know, I'd go on, you know, line and look, you know, where's Marilyn May playing? I don't write that down, write that down, you know, and cause we never ever really found, um, uh, management for our act, and uh, you know, it's a it's an odd thing. I'm sure people like some of these booking people think, well, well he's a he's a playwright, he's a drag queen. What does he what does he do? Uh, and 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 the act has kind of changed a bit. I used to do more of these comedy pieces like Miriam Passman, and I, I and uh, and I really was talk singing mostly because see a a big thing that i believe in is is um 
it's so easy to be discouraged and think, oh, I can't do this. I'm no good at this. So I, I try to flip things around and say, well, what is it that I have to offer? So if I'm, if I'm not the world's greatest singer, but a good actor, so I'll, I'll approach these songs as acting pieces and really focus on the, on the lyrics and all that. So I've you know, I'm a storyteller. So I, that I have to offer, maybe not so much this, I'll do this. And, uh, but then as, as the years have gone by, you know, I started taking some singing lessons and, and I began to trust the melody more as a form, form of expression. Tom began uh, throwing at me much more complicated arrangements. Uh, so it, it's really grown. Then there was, then there was a point, oh, I, I don't know, maybe six years ago, maybe more where um, I started thinking that maybe um, I didn't need to be in full drag to do this act. Mm -hmm. It never quite made intellectual sense to me that why, why am I in drag? Because I'd be introduced as here he is Charles Bush, you know, and I would be singing Sondheim and telling stories about my life, but I'd be dressed up kind of like Arlene Dahl. So I didn't really understand it, except that I justified it that because of my plays where I'm always in, you know, uh, playing a female character that my audience would appreciate me being, you know, the, the, the lady at the mic. But at a certain point, it just, I, I thought that, that the, the important thing in, in cabaret is to have a persona that is really 98% who you really are. If, if you're doing, you know, if you're coming on as, as yourself, you know, not if you're playing a character, mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, I think the Salome's final veil is just, it's time to, to tear it off. And it was kind of scary because I, I, you know, I, I never liked playing male roles. And uh, I thought, well, so, you know, what, what do I have to serve now? Sort of talk like this and wear, wear a bow tie and, and a vest. Uh, and, and then, I, you know, I first I tried out the act out of drag at Pangea, which is a really fun place down mm -hmm. in East Village. And I was just in a black shirt and black pants, and I didn't see any difference in my performance at all. In fact, I just felt a little freer. Uh, but then I thought, well, in this time that we live in of you know, kind of gender fluidity, I don't have to look like I'm the waiter. You know, so then I, I had a, a suit made that was somewhere, I've always said it was a bit of a cross between um, Bruno Mars and, and Judy at the Palace. Wow, and and so you know, I have a kind of androgynous look that I enjoy, enjoy and and that's how the the, the act has um, evolved. And I have this relationship with Fifty Four Below that's you know gone on for really almost since they began. And they asked me um, kind of out of the blue a few months ago if I'd like to come back, uh, and it, it was very um, good timing because you know I had this health crisis this summer uh, this christmas i had heart surgery um in december wow. you know and, and you know, it shakes you up a lot as you can imagine and and so to get this offer just oh would you like to do a couple nights in in april i thought this is a good thing to to work towards and to get stronger and so so it's it's been nice well i'm hoping to be there well, i can't believe this hour flew i, I you know uh, i want you to come back when the book comes out because uh, uh, there's so much more I want to talk about. Um, 
I'm going to give you the final word, but before we do that, uh, and I've got a clip that I'm going to end the show with uh, uh, also that uh, uh, with your approval, it's one of the clips you sent. <laughs> so uh, anyway. It was terribly obnoxious when I, when I asked. No, I love the fact that you sent me a few clips to choose from uh, so that I'm, I know that uh, you're not going to be uh, shocked by anything I show. So stick around. I got a, a clip that I'm going to show. Okay. I'm going to say my closing remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. It could be about anything that we spoke about today that you uh, want to build upon, anything we didn't talk about uh, that uh, that you wish we had, uh, or just any final word that you want to leave everyone with. And when you say roll tape, uh, the clip will start to roll. Uh, so anyone, uh, I want to thank everybody for being here today. Uh, you could have been anywhere else. You could have been watching the news today. Uh, there's a little news item going on out there that you could have been watching, but you chose to be here, and that means a lot to me. Uh, so as you all know, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. I'm telling you what you can do. Uh, you can go online. And it's not out there yet, but you can pre-order. It's available, and this is how you can get. You can go to charlesbush.com, and you can pre-order right on the website. Uh, order two copies. Keep one for yourself, and then send one to someone, a friend, that you have not spoken to in a while. Pick up the phone, call them, let them know how they've made a difference in your life. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. Let them know that they make a difference in your life. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. I don't care if you're in a canoe or a raft or if you're pushing a, a yacht upstream or if you're on an RSVP cruise. Just make sure you have a skipper by your side. And with that note, I'm going to leave the screen. And Charles, it's all yours. And I just adore you. Uh, so much. I'm so thrilled that you said yes to being here today. Thank you. And it's all yours. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. You're, you're a wonderful interviewer. I, I so appreciate it. You, you go a little deeper and, and, and you're so right. Um, the regrets that I have, and uh, I don't have too many regrets, but, but they generally are that not having told somebody that what, what they did for me or, you know, uh, really being appreciative and I, I think if we, we could all just, um, life is so transitory and can change in, a, in an instant that we need to let people know, you know, how, how grateful we are to them. I'm going to try to do that more. I, I, I've been trying to do that more. I can do, do it even, even more. So thank you, Richard. And off we go. <laughs> He who transgresses the laws of man shall dwell forever in the fires of Beelzebub. That's a rather odd thing to say, Bootsy. Even from you. Heathen, purge thy sins. After 25 years in this house, I know all your dirty little secrets, and I mean all of them. And after 25 years, you finally show your true colors. I must say, it's not terribly attractive. Lady, I'm going to be around your neck like an albatross till the day you leave this green earth. And I mean it. Listen, sister, I don't take threats from maids. Now it's you who's showing her true colors. You never fooled me, not for a minute. I always knew you were nothing but trash washed over the Canadian border. You're never going to write a book about Mr. Sussman because I won't let you. You're not going to make a penny spoiling his good name. You floss-scrubbing old hag. 
You've got nothing on me. And even if you did, who would believe you? You're a liar, a cheat, and a drunk. I dried out at one of those fancy sanitariums years ago. I know much of our booze. You've been knocking back alone in your pitiful little maid's room. You're a lonely, bitter souse, Bootsy. No one's going to believe your word against mine. And I mean no one. Woe unto ye who makes mockery of the righteous. It takes great courage to murder the first time. That's when you can no longer claim your soul as your own. After that, it becomes remarkably simple. You'd never be quite sure what lay around the corner, would you, dear? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.